And as I've been doing each week, I would ask that you would take your Bibles there in the pew or one that you have with you. And if you're using the pew Bible, Isaiah 62 can be found on page 738. We do encourage you to have a open Bible before you. We go through the verses as they are found uh, here in God's word. And it's often very helpful for us to see them as they are read and to follow along in that reading. As you do that, uh, some verses this week that have really come to the forefront of my mind and really have become sort of a, a guide for me in the conclusion of our study of the book of Isaiah, which we've been in, as you know, for some time. Uh, these verses from Colossians 3 uh, really came this week as I was thinking about what we're looking at in Isaiah. Paul writes to the Colossian believers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, if then, he writes, you have been raised with Christ, which of course we have if we are truly his, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, in these verses, in this book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is following his traditional pattern. There are four chapters, two he spends primarily dealing with the doctrines of our faith. And having established those truths, he begins to make practical application in, in chapters three and four. And so it's very significant to me, at least, and I hope to you, that in the very first verses of the practical section, he reminds all believers that living this life in Jesus begins with taking our eyes off of this world and off the things of the world and looking and seeking those things which are above Jesus said it the same way, different words in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, he says, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? Those are the things of the earth that often concern us. For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But he says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things then will be added unto you. The Apostle John echoes the very same thought as he writes in his first letter uh, as this temptation to be consumed by the things of this world faces every one of us. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Set your mind then on the things which are above, where Christ, who is your life, is he is your glory. He is your crown. He is your chief delight believer. By the grace of God, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears or when he calls you home, you also will appear with him in glory. 
For glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. It's all about glory. And so our eyes are to be fixed on glory. Now, I begin this way this morning to simply help us to see that what Isaiah is doing in chapters 60 through 66, the last portion of his prophecy, is he is calling the remnant to look to glory, to look beyond the earthly things, beyond the temporal things, beyond even the temporal city of Jerusalem, to whom the Lord will bring them, or to which the Lord will bring them when he delivers them out of the bondage of their captivity in Babylon. Remember, Isaiah is writing to an audience that is comprised of the people who are in captivity. He's writing to a future generation. He's telling them as they prepare to leave that their hearts, their minds, their eyes are not to be set on the things of the earth. And so he sets before them these glorious and beautiful visions, these images, these pictures of the glory that God has prepared for all who believe in him and who trust in him. And that glory, as we've seen in Isaiah, has already begun to take shape in our own lives through the coming of Jesus and his work of grace in our lives. And so, as I've said, all of these times we've gathered together, we are looking in Isaiah 60 through 66, primarily looking at heaven. And that is not a bad thing for us to do as we conclude this study. And so I would ask that you would stand as we read once again God's word, Isaiah 62, only 12 verses, and that you would give your attention to this, for it is the word of the living God. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as young, a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. 
and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Uh, Father, these promises that we have heard, this zeal and passion of our Savior for his bride, the church, is seen so clearly in these verses, and our hearts rejoice that you have set your love upon us as your people, that you have called us in Christ. Remind us of these great truths, and may our worship overflow even in these moments to you as we remember your kindness and your mercies to us in Christ. We pray this and your blessing upon all that we do now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In these final chapters, and by that I mean 60 through 66 primarily, we are looking in our study of Isaiah, remembering that he is speaking again to the captives in Babylon. He's preparing them in all that he is teaching us, really from chapters 40 through 66. He's preparing them for God's great deliverance from their captivity. That's clearly the immediate context, but that context serves as a picture and a paradigm for what he really wants them to see, and that is heavenly things. He wants their eyes lifted from the things of the earth beyond what they could ever imagine to the glory that God has prepared for them. That is something, as Isaiah 60 verse 5 reminded us, that makes their hearts thrill and tremble with fear. And that is the response we all should have as we consider the work that God is doing in this world as he calls a people to himself, as he gathers us together in one body, the church made up of Jew and Gentile alike. These are the things Isaiah is talking about, things that commenced with the coming of Christ in his first appearance coming to this earth, and things that will be consummated and brought to its fullness and completion when Jesus himself returns. Now in chapter 60, there he speaks of the glory Uh, to come when the church made up again of Jews and Gentiles alike will shine in the world in the midst of the darkness of this world. He will make his people, Isaiah 60 reminded us, beautiful and glorious, and he will speak to them of the fullness of glory that is still to come, of heaven itself, the hope of every true believer, the place that right now many of our brothers and sisters have gone before us and enjoy now in the presence of our Savior forever, Christ returning, and he will bring us together with them into the new heavens and the new earth where everything that he has promised will be brought to fulfillment and completion. That's what Isaiah tells us in these chapters. In chapter 61, we focused Last week, when we studied this chapter, primarily on the means or by whom will this be accomplished? And of course, we learned as Jesus took the words of Isaiah 61 into his own mouth, as he declared to his hearers on that first time in the synagogue in Nazareth, that these words are fulfilled in him. 
that Jesus is the means. He is the way in which the Lord will accomplish this great work. It's through Jesus that he is gathering a people to himself as his ministry continues through the acts of the apostles, through the New Testament, and down to our very day in which we are living. It is through Christ, his work, that all of this is taking place. The Lord is about a great and marvelous work as he gathers a people from all the earth and unites them together in Jesus Christ. Believers, we are told in Acts or Isaiah 61, we are told that believers will be clothed with the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness, covered with the garments of salvation. These, is, these are images. This is imagery of something that is far beyond a, a temporal, little, literal city here on this earth. This goes far beyond that. This is a glory that this earth knows nothing of except what it sees in the church herself. Earlier in Isaiah, during the second of the four main servant songs of Isaiah, the Lord reminded his people of this great truth. It is too light or too small a thing that you speaking, the father speaking to the servant, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now in chapter 62, as you've heard it read, the Lord builds upon these very themes and adds to them and expands them for our great encouragement this morning. So the themes are familiar. They've kind of flowed through 60 and 61. Now we look at 62 this morning. And as we did last week, we can divide this chapter into two main sections. In the first chapter uh, 62, verses 1 through 5, we see Zion renamed. And then secondly, in verses 6 through 12, we see Zion preserved. Let's look together first at Zion renamed. Remember, as we've been studying Isaiah, the term Zion used by Isaiah so often is a reference not merely to a city. Sometimes it refers to Jerusalem, the city. But it's a term that Isaiah uses primarily to talk about the people of God who are referenced as a city into which God's presence comes. And it sort of foreshadows the, the words of the Apostle Paul when he talks about the Lord building a temple made up of people, individual bricks, if you will, into which the Holy Spirit comes and resides. Zion is a picture of God's people gathered together in one. Now, in chapter 62, the immediate question that we face in verse 1 is who is the I? Who is the speaker here? For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Now, many choices have been offered, and uh, some more than others are helpful. Uh, one of the things I think we can say uh, clearly is that this seems to be a reference to the divine, whether it is the father speaking or the son, the servant of Isaiah. That's what my view is, that uh, the one speaking here in chapter 62, and I think very fittingly, is the servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is speaking here, if you'll notice, of his great love, his zeal and commitment for his bride, the church. 
Look at the language of these verses, especially verse 1. For Zion's sake, out of love for her, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is a picture, I believe, of great love between uh, the beloved, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. This is the servant speaking of his zeal, which consumes him, if you will. You remember the references earlier in Isaiah where the Lord uh, references in his earthly ministry the, the words of Isaiah, zeal consumed me for my house. The, the Lord was filled with the zeal for the house of the Lord as he watched the money changers there. He overturned the tables because it was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, that wasn't a picture of just simply Jesus not liking things being sold in the court of the Gentiles. That was a picture of something less than what God had purposed, that his church would be a place for Jew and Gentile together. And his zeal for that work of God that God was doing was referenced there as it is here. The Lord has a zeal for the righteousness of his people, a zeal that they would shine brightly like a torch in the earth. Now, he does that by not keeping quiet or by not keeping silent. What does that mean? I think here again, we have the primarily prophetic ministry of our Savior as our great prophet who speaks by his word to his church. And by his word continues to shape and fashion his people as the spirit blesses it uh, to the conformity that is in Jesus Christ. That's the picture we have here. Jesus continues. He will not be silent. He will not be quiet until all his purposes had been accomplished in his church and where they shine as the righteous in the midst of this world. Now, if you look all through these first five verses, the imagery is very clear. The imagery is the image of a marriage. He speaks about that in one of the names that are given there in verse 4. Your land shall be called married, or even the other name, my delight is in her. Hephzibah and Beulah, two names here mentioned in the scriptures as the Lord renames his people. It's in the context of a marriage. The marriage between Christ, the bridegroom, the servant of the Lord, and his bride, the church, the people whom God has set apart for him. And as we saw in Revelation 19, we'll present to him on that great day of the marriage feast and the supper of the Lamb. You know, this is why I think Paul, as he considers uh, his words and writes to husbands and wives. It's why he says what he does when he writes to husbands these words. And man, if you're a husband, you know these words well. Husbands in Ephesians 5, he says, love your wives. In what way are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Where, where do you think Paul got those ideas about what Christ has done for his church? Well, one of the places for sure that he got those ideas is Isaiah 62. 
Because Isaiah uses the imagery of a marriage, uses the imagery of a renaming, uses the imagery of one who is zealously committed to the good of the one he loves. And Jesus is committed by his word and spirit to making her to be all that he has called her to be. And so you see the nations, verse 2, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. He wants that righteousness to be displayed for all to see for his own glory, for his own namesake, but that they might see the glory of God within the church itself. This people are given a new name with new clothes of chapter 61, the robes of righteousness, the garments of salvation. Comes a new name as well, or really names. There are several here. You can see them again in verse 4. Hephzibah, my delight is in her. Beulah or married, referring to the land itself, which again, I remind you, is a picture of the people of God, not merely the land itself, but a reference ultimately to the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But look later in verse 12, the second section of this very chapter has other names, fulfilling the promises of God in Exodus, for instance, that they shall be and called a holy people. They will be the redeemed of the Lord. They will be the ones who were sought out in a city that is not any longer forsaken. This giving of a new name is really a a picture of God's ownership, if you will, his rights over his people, his sovereignty over them. Only those who have the right and authority to give new names may indeed give new names, and God does that. And by giving these names, he is telling his people that this is his purpose. This is what he intends. This is what he is doing. He is completely transforming their reality. You see that reality in verse 4 again, prior to the names. No more will you be termed forsaken or desolate. That was the reality of Jerusalem. As the people would have read these and heard these words, that was the reality of Jerusalem, the city. And the Lord, using that imagery, is saying, no longer will you be that forsaken or desolate, but you will now be one in whom my delight is found and one in whom is betrothed to me. In God's providence, as many of you know and have been praying for our family, we've been reminded of this truth in our own lives as a family. During the gatherings that we've had over these past several weeks with the extended families, the birth families of Luke and Jude, we've been reminded many times that their names when they came to us were not always Luke and Jude. If I were to ask you, what were their names? Would any of you remember? I think most of you would. Frankie and Johnny were their names when they came to us. Four years after they came to our home and before we adopted them on that day of adoption when we met in the court and we were given essentially the right Uh, To have these as our legal children, we did, I think, what any parent would do. We gave them new names. It didn't mean we didn't like their old names. They're still, and we heard it a lot over the recent times, Frankie and Johnny, as they met various family members throughout these past several weeks. But we were just reminded, and it was a good thing that the Lord reminded us, that we had the privilege now, and then we did, as we adopted them, to give them new names. And often when we pick names for our children, as many of you have done with your children, you look beyond the present, right? You don't think merely of the moment in which you are. You, you sort of look, and perhaps even as we did, with faith to the future and to the promises of God. And so we chose names for them. 
that reflected that hope that we have. Joshua, Luke, and Christopher Jude both speak of the Lord's salvation through a Savior and Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And though we call them by their middle names because they're shorter and they sort of match their previous names, we always remember their full given names as a reminder to us of God's promise. You see, that's the right of parents to give names. It reflects a right that belongs to them alone. Children belong to their parents under God. As believers, we belong to God, having been bought with a price, even the precious blood of Jesus. So this great love that our God has for his people is seen even in the giving of these names, unique names, important names that remind her of their glorious future and the fact that the Lord himself delights in her and has married her, if you will. He says that again in verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And that is exactly what God has done. It is a reminder, sort of a side note for us who are husbands, that the the standard that the Lord sets before us as men called to love our wives is none, nothing less than the standard of Christ's love to his own church. In, in our day, most of the time, the objection to reading Ephesians 5 in a wedding ceremony is uh, the phrase that says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But I would offer, and I think all of us as men would agree, that this standard that we have set before us is apart from the grace of God impossible for us to do. No man I've ever met, myself included, has ever loved his wife like these verses talk about the love of Christ and the zeal that he has for his bride, the church. We fail and falter all the time, but praise God he gives grace that we might press on. Jesus never fails. His love for his church is constant. His zeal for their holiness and their righteousness is never ending. And that is a high standard to which we are called as men. I simply remind you of that this morning, that God may remind you yourself in your own lives and prompt you to fulfill all that he calls you to fulfill in this great joy that he has set before you. This is the first part, this wonderful picture of the Lord's love for his church, the Lord's uh, care for his bride, and his commitment to her holiness, his delight in her. There's a parallel passage, and I do want to read it. Elder Marty Rogian and I were uh, sort of exchanging it this morning as we came out of the room after prayer. It's from Zephaniah 3, a small uh, minor prophet, three chapters. But in that final chapter, we read these words. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, that is the people of God. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. 
Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I think speaking of the same time when Christ comes in the work of Jesus as he consummates that at the last day, at that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's a, that's a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's a picture of what God still has for us. You know, the world doesn't look at us favorably. We've not yet gotten to the place, and we never will in my own view of these things, where we will be people of renown and praise of the earth. The, the world hates Christ, hates his followers. But there's coming a day where God will make us these things and restore the fortunes of his people, where this will be fully realized at the final judgment, at the final return of Jesus, when he takes us to be with him forever, and where we dwell in his presence, in the glory that is his alone. And that's a point I want to end this section with this morning. You know, our glory that he speaks of here the glory that God sees in us is a derived glory. We've said that before, but we need to say it again. It's not innate to us. It's not part of our nature. It's who God makes us to be as we're united with Jesus. It's derived from the glory that is Jesus. The Lord rejoices over us. He delights in us. He looks upon us with favor because we are clothed in the righteousness of his dear son. That is the only reason the Lord takes delight in us. Yes, he calls us to obedience. Yes, he calls us to follow him. Yes, he calls us to serve him faithfully. But in the end, all of our works are still tainted by our remaining sin. What God sees in us is the clothing of his son, the robes of righteousness, the garments of salvation. And that is what he delights in. When we end our service, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns. I know it's a favorite of Pastor Fisher and maybe even some others here this morning. It talks about the glory of heaven itself, of Emmanuel's land. It reminds us that when we speak of this glory, we do speak of a derived glory, not an innate glory, not one that is ours by nature. It's a hymn that was written by a woman in the 18th century who, or 19th century who loved the letters and reading the letters of the great Samuel Rutherford. You know, both of your pastors love Samuel Rutherford. That itself should tell you, you ought to read whatever you can get your hands on. We love the letters of Samuel Rutherford and all that he has written. He has such a passion and devotion to the glory of Christ. He loves to consider the beauty and loveliness of Jesus. It was him, it was said as his recorded last dying words, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. It was that quote from his writings that stirred the heart of Anne Ross Cousins almost 200 years later to set the words of Rutherford and his letters into a hymn. The hymn again is a marvelous testimony of treasuring Christ above all else in this life and the next. And this I didn't realize. I should have. I've known this hymn for a long time. The original hymn that she wrote was 19 stanzas. We're going to sing all 19 this morning. No, we're not. Aren't you glad we're not? 
she actually only uses uh, stanzas 1, 4, 5, and 17 of all that she wrote to give us the hymn that we sing. But her point is clear, isn't it? We have a derived glory because the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And when we sing that as we close the service, remember that. The delight that God takes in us is because of Jesus. Now, secondly, in verses 6 through 12, and move quickly here this morning. Again, we have a speaker in verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. What is, who is a speaker? I think, again, the speaker here is God. It could be the prophet, but it doesn't make sense for the prophet to be one who speaks in this way. So I think it is the Lord himself who is speaking. A more important question is, who are the watchmen? Uh, some argue that it's angels. Uh, that's a possibility, although I don't believe that that is the accurate one or most faithful to what we see here. Angels are sort of never pictured. They are pictured as ministering spirits on behalf of the church of God's people. Hebrews tells us that very quickly or very uh, uh, clearly. Um, but it's unlikely that they would be the ones who are interceding themselves for us and giving God no rest. I think it is probably more specifically the prophets that the Lord raises up over generations, that he might uh, continue to proclaim his word to his people. I think it is broader. I think you get to the New Testament, you see a broadening of this to pastors and teachers, for instance, as watchmen set upon the walls. And, and I believe, ultimately, it's a picture of the whole church. We are, after all, a kingdom of priests unto our God. We, we function in that role, if you will, of priest interceding before the Lord. So I think all of us can be seen in this very thing. But what we have here again is a picture of God's preserving of his people. All throughout here, there's reference to enemies in verse eight. There are always enemies of the Lord. We saw that uh, in the recent news report coming out of Haiti. There are those who hate the Lord, hate his servants, and will do whatever they can to stop them. And so that is always the, the condition of the church in the midst of this world. And so here we see the Lord preserving. I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. I think a reference to their prophetic ministry, continuing to proclaim the word of God as he reveals it to them and through them to the people, that they will never cease to speak the truth of God's word. You who put the Lord in remembrance, that's a reference, I think, to the work of their ministry to constantly put the Lord and his word before the minds and hearts of the people who take no rest at all, who are tireless, shall never be silent all day and all night. This is something beyond just ordinary watchmen who would have uh, cycles of their service. They would go for eight hours, if you will, or, or however many hours after another, and they would take a rest. This is a picture of something greater and ongoing, not merely a physical city that needs to be guarded. This is a picture of spiritual realities that are referenced here, how God is preserving his people. He makes an oath in verse eight and nine, an oath and a promise he swears that he will, in fact, deliver by his mighty arm his people, that he will turn their fortunes again, no longer giving their grain to their enemies, but rather allowing them to enjoy the work of their harvest and what they have labored for. As they gather, they will participate and drink it in the courts of his sanctuary. Again, this is language, Old Testament covenant language tied to the land, 
to picture and express the spiritual realities, spiritual realities of what God is doing among his people. And then verses 10 through 12, you have another picture of God calling his people to go forth. I think the gates in verse 10, I agree with those who see the gates as the gates of bondage and Babylon go, go through the gates of bondage, he says. Remember, the immediate context is the deliverance of the people from Babylon itself and from their captivity. So go forth through the gates as the Lord opens them. Prepare the way for the people. We saw that several times in Isaiah. Make straight the paths, build up the highway, clear it of stones, remove any obstacle whatsoever so that the people may come into the presence of God. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes and his reward is with him. Ultimately, I think a picture of the coming of Jesus, even as he rides on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. These references would come to the minds of the people. The salvation of the Lord comes. His reward is with him. His judgment against his enemies with him as well. And then verse 12 finally says, God will finally fulfill through all of this what he has promised of old. They will be a holy people. They will be the redeemed of the Lord. They will be ones who are sought out and a city no longer forsaken. They have a glorious future is what he's saying. And God is preserving them until that future comes to pass. That's the picture of verses 6 through 12. God's preserving of his people throughout all the ages until he brings about the full measure of it when Christ returns. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of a a wonderful and perhaps forgotten sort of illustration that I know I've used in the past. It comes from a small town in Germany called Hernhut. Perhaps some of you have heard that. I'm sure Jack has heard of it and maybe others who know Germany well. This little village of Hernhut, Hernhut means, or probably Hernhut means the Lord's Watch. Its name comes from an incident that happened there back in the 18th century. On June 17, 1722, a little band of religious fugitives from Moravia in the modern Czech Republic asked Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf if they might settle in some of his land there in Hernhut. The count agreed. One Moravian leader was Christian David, a potter who burned with zeal for the things of the Lord. Zinzendorf as well was a man of deep religious conviction and piety, He and his wife had dedicated their lives to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Hernhut had become, or Hernhut had become, a gathering place for many religious exiles, and often from very different backgrounds. And one of the things that troubled Zinzendorf is he sort of ended up taking leadership and sharing leadership of this small group of Moravian believers was that they had come. And others had come from various backgrounds, and he was concerned about the potential division that would be present and often was present as they were coming from slightly different doctrinal backgrounds. And so we read historically that on August 13th, 1727, five years after they settled at a baptism and communion service, the Holy Spirit moved through the room, they write. Differences seemed to dissolve. All embraced one another in forgiveness and a spirit of love. And Christ became central to their thinking. They established a 24-hour round-the-clock prayer vigil 
which lasted for 100 years. The fervent prayers resulted in the sending out of missionaries to many lands, the first Protestant mission outside Europe and North America. Thus, Hernhut reached out and touched other lands. Moravians influenced John and Charles Wesley. Moravian missionary zeal prompted William Carey's effort to reach India for Christ. As he said to those to whom he was speaking, see what these Moravians have done in his appeal to be commissioned as a missionary to India. You see, they became watchmen on the walls of Zion. Zinzendorf, as you know, wrote the words to the hymn we ended our service with last week. Jesus, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me. For me, a full atonement made and everlasting ransom paid. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy banished ones rejoice. Their beauty, this, their glorious dress. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Who are the watchmen's of Zion today? I think the watchmen's of Zion are ministers, pastors, teachers, elders within the church that the Lord Jesus clearly has set apart by ordination to guard, if you will, the deposit of truth committed unto the church once and for all. It is our unique responsibility as we stand in this pulpit week after week to proclaim the truth of God's word, not mixing our own thoughts or ideas and Uh, other influences into it, but simply to proclaim Christ and him crucified. It is our responsibility uniquely, perhaps, to guard that truth, to keep it from error, to protect the flock from those who would come in to steal away the sheep and to lead them in error. Clearly, that is what Ephesians 4 tells us, that in order for you as believers, the sheep of God's fold, In order for you not to be tossed to and fro and carried about by waves, every wind of doctrine, he's given to the church these men, elders, ministers of the gospel, and teachers within his church to guide, to lead, to protect, and to call them to look unto Christ. But you know, as I said, I think it extends beyond that. That might be the formal sort of equivalent of the prophet's. But every believer shares in this work as well. Every single believer who has been joined to Christ by the Lord's great work is called to be a watchman. Every one of us. And so believers share in this work under the new covenant in the body of Christ. And we ought to take that as we see when we close very seriously. Well, those two parts, I think, are there before us. They're helpful for us to see. He continues this glorious picture. Two things to leave you with as a reminder and perhaps even an encouragement in what you're going through right now. First of all, take comfort, believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, take comfort this morning in his never-ending, zealous love for you. This picture is, if nothing else, a picture of our Savior's love for us. How committed he is to your good and to mine. There's nothing here that would forbid us to take these things personally. This is directed to Zion as a whole, but part of Zion, all the parts of Zion are a part of this as well. And each individual believer can look and see the Savior's love in his or her own life. Trace out often his hand of providence in your life. See his pursuit of you, his faithfulness to you, 
in Christ, that Jesus might be fully formed in you. Understand and interpret everything that happens in your life, no matter what it is, good or bad, by your own definition and view, no matter what it is, understand it all as an expression of his love. That's, that's really what this passage teaches us. And upon this, the passages of the rest of the Bible. He does work all things together for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. God's great purpose, and hear this this morning, you know this, but hear it again. God's great purpose in your life and mine, if you are a believer, is simply this, is to make you more like Jesus. That's it. He's doing it every day through every means that he's appointed in your life is to make us more like him, that we might shine forth, verse 1, as brightness and be as a burning torch in the world and among your family and among those you work with, etc. Take comfort, believer, true comfort in his love for you. It is relentless. It is zealous. You see it in these verses. He is committed to loving you. He delights in you. And it's all because of Jesus that you have been united to him. And so individually take great comfort in that truth. It will serve you well as you walk through the very difficult and deep waters of trial and suffering to know that even those are part of his expression of love for you is a great, great comfort. Secondly, and this is perhaps a challenge and an encouragement. Take up your place then as a watchman on the walls. We've seen the main point of our text, distinguishing the various gifts given to his people. We, we understand the, the primary emphasis upon prophets first and then pastors and teachers and leaders, the apostles themselves. But since we are a kingdom of priests to our God, we are called to be those individually who are watchmen as well, who watch, who stand, who fight for the truth, wherever we are, wherever we're found, who pray unceasingly and fervently for the advance of the kingdom, using the weapons of our warfare that Christ has given to us, not the weapons of flesh and blood, but rather the weapons that enable us to battle against arguments and every lofty opinion and against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to be watchmen, to guard the truth generally as God allows us within our families, within our workplaces, within our interactions with various people, to speak boldly for the sake and cause of Christ and to demonstrate by all that we do that we are his. We are called to have a zeal for these things, a zeal and a love for his church, listen, that matches the zeal that Christ has. Christ loves his church. When I hear believers who say, yeah, pastor, I'm a Christian, but nah, I don't like going to church, don't like to do that, I say, ha, problem, red flag, you can't love Jesus, you can't and despise his church. You can't love Jesus and forsake his church. He loves his church. Look what he does. And look what we're called to do. It's watchmen. We're called to be engaged in working with and in one another's lives to bring about, as God would allow us to be used, the glory and righteousness of Christ in one another. We don't do that work. 
but we're instruments, we're means by which God does it among us. And so our commitment to the church, to one another, is to be like the commitment that Jesus has. And brother and sister, if you can read verses 1 through 5 and say that your commitment to the church matches Jesus, then all the better for you and for me as well. I trust it doesn't. I know it doesn't in my own life. And I love the church. I love his people. The great hymn writer wrote these words, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thine hand. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Jesus, thou friend divine, our Savior and our King, thy hand from every snare and foe shall great deliverance bring. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. Come, take your stand on the walls that God has established in Zion. Not only to protect, not only to defend against all enemies, not only to pray unceasingly and fervently, but can I add a practical viewpoint here? When you take your stand on the walls of Zion, you can see heaven better from here and the glories that await you. Let us pray. Father, show to us, we pray, by your spirit and word, the glories that still await as we stand on the walls of Zion, as we look out against enemies and those who would wish her harm, as we seek to protect and defend your precious bride. Grant us grace to that end, we pray. And may we see as we look, and as we look beyond the world, to heaven itself, and to the glories that await us, and to our King, all glorious above. We pray that you would grant us such eyes of faith and such encouragement to these things. In Jesus' name.